You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year, a comedy podcast looking back at this week in history. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, Podbean, iHeartRadio, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. If you want to follow us on social medias or message us with some suggestions for worst ever segments, you can do that over on Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's walking around with a security blanket while his sister is dishing out advice at five cents a whack. It's Mr. <laughs> Jeff McLaudge. Hey, hey, look, it's Charlie Brown. How I loathe him. <laughs> the very first Charlie Brown cartoon. Hey, how's it going? Uh, so I'm good. So since we have this like kind of retro-based podcast that we've been doing over here for the past couple of years mm-hmm. i had a retro based weekend oh yeah last weekend or the weekend before yeah uh because my birthday is in the busiest time of the year for me uh my friend bob and his wife were nice enough to take me out for my birthday weeks after the fact <laughs> and we had gone to this retro arcade right over here in uh, sunny new bedford massachusetts yep. a place called play there we go. Cheap plug for the place. Play Arcade. It's at the bottom of Union Street, which is, oh. for you history buffs, one of the ending arteries of the Underground Railroad. Oh. Ran right through Union Street, New Bedford. So, yeah, Play Arcade. There's, um, you know, there's a bar. They have food, you know, kind of like sports bar food. Right. And a bunch of old and some new pinball machines and video arcade games. Oh, next. It's really cool. Next time I come to town, I'll have to check it out. I'll bring you with me. We'll go, get, yeah, yeah. we'll go get a cheeseburger, Bill. A yeah. cheeseburger. Uh, yeah, they have sliders. Sliders. And, uh, it was cool. They're French fries. They don't have French fries. They have tater tots. Mm-hmm. But their tater tots are in the shape of uh, Tetris blocks. Oh, that's cool. I've made those here. Yeah. Uh, there was a tutorial to make those online, and Meg really wanted them one day, so we figured out how to do it and made them. You know, generally, I like my tater tots to be more in the shape of French fries, but that's just me. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was cool. They had they had some pinball machines that were a little more modern than their video arcade games. Yep. Like, they had, like, an original Donkey Kong game there. Wow. But the pinball machine that I was playing was based on the Avengers. So, you know, a little yeah, more modern. Definitely more modern, yeah. What was, uh, you said you had some... I did. Some time machine business going on. What'd you do? So, I, I found myself reading articles and, and watching videos about pre-1934 Hayes Code Hollywood. And uh-huh. it turns out that there are, there's a surprisingly large amount of pre-Hayes Code films on YouTube. For the last weekend, I spent, I don't know, something like three or four hours watching pre-Hayes Code movies. And it was really interesting to see the way that storytelling changed after 1934. Ah. how ribald and sort of salacious the pre-1934 films were. It's almost like they were telling stories the way that they started to tell them in the 1970s when the Hayes Code started to fall apart. It's how they were doing it right. in 1931, 1932, 1933. It was really interesting to watch. A lot of the plots are yeah. uh, people make really bad decisions and then there's crime. Yes. There's a movie <laughs> that I've told this story on the show before that I was searching for for like 30, 40 years 
called Two Seconds. Yep. And I couldn't find it because I didn't know the name of the movie. Thank God for the internet. Right. And, uh, and new- news forums and stuff like that. But that was, I want to say it was film noir. It might have been just before the Hays Code. I think it's a pre-code movie. I'd have to take a look at it. But I believe some people, because I found the answer to my question in a film noir group. Right. They were like, that's not technically film noir. No, it's not. Film uh, noir starts in the 40s with uh, Double Indemnity. I think that's considered the first film noir film. Oh, okay. But, but, but two seconds it, it, was... But the, uh, crime, the crime films, are no, they're no different than film noir. It's just uh, that they're not, they weren't popular in France. <laughs> Double Indemnity <laughs> was popular in France, hence the name Film Noir. Films of the Night. That famous Film Noir star, Jerry Lewis. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, oh, that's cool. Um, it was, it's yeah, really the, been fun, yeah. The movie industry, there was that, those years there, those 40 years or so uh, of the Hayes Code, where movies were super safe. And, but like the, the bookends of that, the before and the after is doubly interesting because it's like it's storytelling without handcuffs. Right. You know, the, the one thing that really changed between pre Hayes Code and post Hayes Code was the appearance of nudity because there was nudity in the films, some of the films that I watched and uh-huh. the language choices. So there was a lot more explicit language. It wasn't swearing, but it was explicit language around like, let's go kill that cop, which you could say right. in 1931. And after 1934, you couldn't do that anymore. And it changed the way that characters were focused. So you might have terrible characters in your film, but ultimately they were redeemed at the end of the film. Even like Angels with Dirty Faces with Jimmy Cagney, he's redeemed as he's on his way to the electric chair, right? In that film. Oh, right. That movie that I was talking about there, Two Seconds, the the evil character, the only redemption she had was getting shot. Yeah. And ultimately, in the pre-Hays Code movies, like, everybody just sucks all the way through the movie. <laughs> they, they never get any better. It's just bad. But they're really fun to watch and in surprisingly good quality for YouTube. So, oh, well. So, go and enjoy. All right. All right. Well, before we get the show rolling, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Oh, man. Uh... In the post haze code world of webcams, not just the the webcams where you give the girls tokens, I'm talking about like yeah, any kind of webcam stuff. Like I go live every Tuesday on my Facebook and on Twitch, Bill with one L three fifteen, and I do live art streams every Tuesday. So uh, there's a lot of people that do you know live broadcasting and yeah. TikTok and this yep, that yep. And the other blah blah blah, but that all has to start somewhere. What is the first recorded use of a live webcam? What was its purpose? Uh, okay. Well, I don't know. So we'll figure that out at the end of the show. It's fun. I'm sure it is. <laughs> no one else is fun? This week's episode. Yes. This is the week beginning January the 8th, and it is your turn to start. All right. January the 8th, 1956. Elvis Presley's first single, Don't Be Cruel, and the B-side of Don't Be Cruel... Hound Dog goes number one and stays number one for 11 weeks, which at the time is a record for a, a single. A record for a record. It's a record <laughs> for a record, yes. What's kind of interesting is, one, both Don't Be Cruel and Hound Dog are iconic early rock and roll songs. Two, uh-huh. Hound Dog was the B-side to <laughs> Don't Be Cruel, which you would think that the record company would have done two other songs 
and made each of those the A sides, and then released one, and then a f- you know a few months, a few weeks, a few months later, released the other one. And right, both of those but, songs are iconic Elvis songs. Yeah, but to think that they're both on the same forty-five. Yeah, not a throwaway. Not no. Nope. But a lot of times, though, people didn't like see that coming. One of the most famous B-side scenarios of all time is the. The single for Kiss's song, Detroit Rock City. Right. The B-side of that was Beth. Yeah. Kiss had some success, you know, coming off of the Kiss Alive album. You know, the ball really started going, got rolling for them at that point. When Beth was the B-side to Detroit Rock City, you know, stuff still got shipped to radio stations as records. Yeah. You know? Yes. DJ stood for disc jockey. Right. So... You know, the disc jockey in, I forget what city it was, he got the uh, the 45 or the single for Detroit Rock City, but he had played the other side, Beth, either by accident or by choice, whatever it was. He wasn't playing the song he was supposed to be playing. Right. That is how Kiss got to be super famous because right. yeah, Beth that was song huge. just exploded for them. Yeah. There have been other instances where that's happened too, where the B-side is, is the better of the two tracks. It's funny to talk about them now because it's less of a thing. The, the older we get, the further back in history, that the whole oh, sure. sort of vinyl records as singles thing changes and evolves. Where at one time you you could go spend 45 cents and get Hound Dog on the B side and Don't Be Cruel on the A side. You're much less likely to do that now. Now, there are some places we can still buy 45s. All of the Sun Records 45s are available at... Or through Third Man Records, which is the, the record stores that are owned by Jack White. Every year he puts out more and more of the Old Sun Records catalog because he owns the whole thing. As 45s, I flip, I flip through them in his record store. All right, so I'm going to just sum this up real quick just because there might be some listeners that are like, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. Yep. So back in the days, you would buy full albums or you could go to the store and buy a single. So one little record, right. one song. It would be, you know, the top 40 single off of the album. Right. On the other side of that record, or the B side, would be another song. And more times than not, the B side was just another song off of the record that was, you know, probably a throwaway. I remember the 45 or the single for Another Brick in the Wall Part Mm 2 off of Pink Floyd The Wall. The B side was One of My Turns, which is just another song off the album. That would never make it as a single. Right. But a lot of times to push sales, bands started putting songs that weren't available on the album. So it's like, why would I go out and buy the single if I already have the whole album? Right. Well, the single has a song that you don't have yet. Right. It's like, okay, so now I have to buy the single too. So that's how B-sides get to be popular. Right. Now. There's something on the other side. You know, when we last week when we talked about box sets and including all of the outtakes and live stuff and all the other things that's it's the b-sides too that also ended up collected on on those and then there's a lot of bands i know marillion put out one anthrax put out one adam and the ants put out one it's just a full album which is a collection of Mm b-sides yep because you can't have it anywhere else that's right all right so moving on to the uh january the 9th of 2001 Apple announces iTunes at the Macworld Expo in San Francisco for organizing and playing digital music and videos. Oh, nice. So that was, yeah, that was kind of like the first MP3 organizer. Yes. I'm pretty sure that they introduced the first iPod in 2001 as well. Because you needed something Uh to carry your MP3s around with. But it, it could have been staggered by a year or two. 
So, yeah, this almost kind of like sandwiches in with what our previous topic is. Uh, it does. We'll get there, though. Go yes. Uh, iTunes was, when it first came out, was fantastic. It was like no one had an interface that was as easy to use for managing and organizing music. It did everything for you. Once you imported a song or a folder or ripped a CD, it just did it. It read all the, the, yeah. the ID3 tags and everything. So it made it really easy to import and organize your music. And then later, using that same interface, Apple offered the iTunes Store once they showed record companies that they could make money selling individual songs, singles, or as I still call them, 45s. <laughs> you still call singles even on iTunes 45s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still That's call funny. them 45s and I call records records even though they're CDs. <laughs> or digital downloads of albums. I call them, it's a record. Well, yeah. people would make fun of me whenever I would call, oh, did you get that album? No, I got the CD. It's like, listen, you shit. <laughs> the word album means a collection, a collection like a yeah. photo album. Right. Yeah. Well, no, I got all my photos on a photo CD. If you're going to correct me, that's, it. that's yeah. it. Get out of the car. You're walking home from here. Yeah. <laughs> Toss them out. <laughs> Take a, a shop right here and turn so they go flying. Yeah. So, so now, I mean, that was like the way to organize... Your MP3s. I never had iTunes because I never had i anything. Mm -hmm. I did have a Zune, which I'm proud of. Shut up. Uh, Zune was the Microsoft. I didn't say anything. You know, um, <laughs> I'm talking to our listeners. Oh, uh, <laughs> I was going to say you're going to have to describe what that is to people, but yeah. So yeah, Zune was the Microsoft alternative to uh, the iPod. Mm. And the Zune software, even years after I no longer had my Zune, I still used the Zune software for my MP3 organization just because it was such a, it was a great piece of software. And that's how I got my podcasts and stuff like that until uh, cell phones became more all-in-one inclusive. It's funny, you know, when we talk a little bit about streaming music and, yeah. and how it evolved from, you know, 45s. 78s to 45s to album cuts to cassette tapes to CDs to ultimately to digital downloads, right? I used to buy music through uh, Google Play Music, which ceased to exist a few years ago. And yeah. like kind of like the Zune hardware, all the music that I bought from that, I lost. Oh, right. It disappeared. It was just gone. Yeah, there was a subscription service that you could have on the Zune. I remember the guy I worked with had it. And it was like, I don't know, maybe $10 a month, kind of like the same, right? you know, that you pay for like Spotify now. But you got like X amount of free songs mm -hmm. that you could download every month. He goes, I downloaded all these songs. And then all of a sudden the service doesn't exist anymore. And I don't own those songs anymore. Right. When, when Google shuttered Google Play, they shunted you first to YouTube Music, which put advertisements before and after every song in your any of your playlists. And then they gave you like so many days that you could download giant folders full of whatever your library was. But like, I don't have time to go through 30 gigs of folders <laughs> looking for stuff that I bought at Google Play that was different than my iTunes library because it combined right. the two. Oh, oh sure. Phooey. It's That's the sort of thing that has driven me back. And I'm sure it's driven other people back to purchasing and owning physical media. Yeah. My friend is, Bob is, that is kind a, of thing. a big proponent of physical media. I tend to stream, but I will buy physical media of certain things. Like if Marillion puts out a new album, yes, absolutely. I, w I want the hard copy of it. 
Not because I think that they're going to disappear off of streaming services. Mm-hmm. It's just that, one, I know the money goes more directly towards the band, and I want to support them, so right. they'll keep making music as long as possible. And two, there is nothing in this world that you can do to streaming media to make it sound as good as a physical copy. Yeah, I agree. You, know, you don't have to agree. You don't have to agree with facts. Facts are facts. <laughs> facts are facts are facts. Well... Back in 2001, Apple provided the first like real mass market MP3 management system. They had their own proprietary music format when they opened the iTunes store, which I think was like a year or two years later, yeah. uh, called AAC. And they were higher quality, higher bitrate samples, but they had DRM in them. So you could only play them in the iTunes store that you had a license or the iTunes software that you had a license to use. Otherwise, Explain they DRM. Play. Uh, D- DRM is digital rights management. Digital rights management okay. means that the, the software or the software artifact that you download is tied to a license agreement that you have that only you can use or only on a device yeah. that is registered with the company that sells you the, whatever that download is. That way you could That was how they got around from people sharing files. Okay. Yes. Yeah. You couldn't share an AAC file because it wouldn't play unless you had a friend like I did who wrote some software. That stripped out the DRM and exported an MP3 file. I mean, things were being done even immediately to circumvent it. I remember there was a, a very short-lived piece of thing. I remember only seeing it around for like, I don't know, like one or two instances. Mm-hmm. It was called Soap. And what you could do was you could download, like a, a band would make their album available for free. You know, yep. or some songs available for free, and you could download it. But the file had a, a thing on it called Soap that would self-destruct the uh, the thing after three listens. So you could listen to it three times. So you you know you could sample it, and then it would just vanish. Yeah, Jeez. yeah, that didn't last because people found a way to hack around that. Of course they did. I'm I'm not yeah. surprised at all. Like when everybody is all terrified of AI and all that, my answer to that is the same answer to DRM and to SOAP is if a computer can encode it, then a computer can decode decode it. it. Yep. (laughs) You can't have one without the other. All right, let's move on to the 10th. January 10th, we have our celebrity birthday. I think it's the only one we have this week. And Nope, two. We have two. Okay, so the first of our celebrity birthdays featuring one of the probably greatest athletes in American history, one of the, the guys that will be in the pantheon of athleticism, for a million years, not only because of his boxing, but because he named all of his prodigy after him, and I'm pretty sure they're all going to name their children after themselves. So that'll just create a line of George Foreman's all the way to the doomsday. So George <laughs> George Foreman himself was born on January 10th, 1949. Which one? The, the I think the first one. I don't know if his father's name was George, but his was. Yeah, he's got like, what does he have? Like five, six kids all named George? All named George, yeah. And then now they're, you know, they're all I got adults a qu- now. I, Before you get into this guy's legacy, mm-hmm. I got a question. His wife, somebody had to say no. <laughs> okay, the first one, George, George Jr., that's fine. Okay, we have a second kid. What are we going to name him? George. Somebody's going to say no. George Jr.? Must have said no, and you know, while he's crapping in his diapers, <laughs> the wife must have put up an uh-huh. argument, but he must have held pretty fast on that. And by the time you get to like the fourth, fifth, or sixth kid, it's like, we're gonna name him George again. It's like, yeah, I know, I got you. <laughs> Aside from having a slew of children named after himself, 
George Foreman is also famous for his acumen as a boxer. He is a gigantic monster hard puncher. That was his yep. uh, trademark, and he was nearly impossible to knock down. He won the 1968 uh, gold medal at the Olympics. For mm-hmm. Obviously, for boxing, it wasn't like he was ice dancing. Well, it's because his center of gravity is like between his knees. So, I wonder you can't knock him down. Well, yeah, I, yeah you're thinking of old, older George Foreman, and I'll get to that in a second. Uh, and then right. in 73, he beat Joe Frazier, who at the time was the heavyweight champion, beat the crap out of him, and took the heavyweight title for himself. And he held on to it for a little while. Lost it, because that's the nature of boxing. You can only box for so long before someone hits you harder than you can hit them. It's not like professional wrestling where they're fighting every week. Right. If you were a boxer fighting every week, you'd be dead by the time you're 20. (laughs) Yeah, you'd definitely be dead. And he sort of disappeared for a while in the late 1970s and early 1980s. He was not a fixture in the boxing scene. And then he started to kind of come back around and get into heavyweight boxing. It was like 1994? He won the belt again. Yeah, 1994, he won He won the heavyweight championship. He beat Tommy Morrison. But in the three or four years preceding that fight, he was coming up in the ranks, like ranked, you know, 14th. And then he was he was ranked like 11th. And then he was ranked 9th. Slowly but surely climbing his way up to fighting guys like uh, Mike Tyson, Lennox Lewis, Lennox Lewis or, or Evander Holyfeld. Yeah, I just want to paint this picture too. Whenever he won the belt from uh, Tommy Gunn there... He was 44 years old. Yeah. That is unheard of in boxing. Yes. Boxers don't fight that late. You I, know, I watched that fight. Like I said, when your job is getting your ass kicked, kicked for right. a living, you know, that's not a long career. True. I watched that fight live. I remember thinking like, okay, they're letting him do this and then he's going to retire after he wins this fight, which is kind of what he did. But in the fights leading up to it, Mm-hmm. where he fought like Evander Holyfield to a standstill, I think, three times. Uh, uh-huh. That The way that he sort of managed his body mass and, and used that unique crossbow style of guarding where he crossed his hands over his chest was just amazing. Yep. And he was always renowned for having the hardest punch in the squared circle. Like, <laughs> they hit you so badly you cried kind of <laughs> punch. Even Ali was like, he hits me so hard I want to cry. And just managed that right up until he was in his late 40s. Amazing. Fantastic dude. Before we move on, let's just move in real quick that he was also uh, very famous for endorsing the George Foreman Grill. Yes. Which nobody had this idea before of taking a uh, electric griddle and tilting it up at a 12-degree angle so the <laughs> grease runs down. Genius. Genius indeed. I remember him selling yep. those on late night TV. They're still around. My girlfriend has one. Yep. No, I have one. Ah, see that? Yeah, your your girlfriend and your good friend have you know, each have one. Yeah, <laughs> I should go get one, and we could be like a, a trilogy, a trilogy of yeah, George yeah. Foreman girls. You could you could cook your black bean burgers on it. That's right. All right, January the eleventh of sixteen twenty starts the legacy of one of the most disappointing field trips of all time. <laughs> this is seriously like uh, an internet, almost like an internet meme now. But it's very famous in this area for being disappointing. So, as I was saying, 1620, the Mayflower Pilgrims come ashore in Plymouth, uh, traditionally thought to be the Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts. All right. So, that's like a big famous thing. Plymouth Rock, as a landmark, is not where they landed. Where they landed was probably just a rocky shore. Right. There's a dedicated rock now. 
Yes, a dedicated rock called Plymouth Rock. And I don't know, it's not very big. It's probably about eight feet by six feet or something like that. It's just a rock and it says 1620 on it. You know, it's at a place where like water can get to it. So it has eroded over the years. Right. So it's a lot smaller than it was, you know, 400, 500 years ago. But like... There's a lot of TikToks I've seen lately about kids going to Plymouth Rock and going, really? That's that's it. That's it, huh? <laughs> but no, it's just a landmark. It's not it's, it's not yeah. an actual thing. No, yeah. it's just a landmark. But that you know, that's it's it's cool that it's commemorated. I'm sure that, you know, outside of the identity that those of us who are from southeastern Massachusetts carry around about the legacy of how Massachusetts came to be, which led to the creation of the thirteen colonies and ultimately to the United yep. States of America. That rock has some significance, even if it's a kind of a boring school field trip. Okay, so two things about that rock, too. One, it has been a landmark in Massachusetts for that amount of time, for 400 years, you know. It is not located in the place that it once was. They moved it some years ago to the place where it is now. But when they moved it, and I think they moved it, I want to say it was in the 70s. It might have been in the 60s. It was, you know... For as long as that rock has been a landmark, it was a fairly recent move. Right. So at any rate, when they were moving it, the guy with the forklift or whatever dropped it and broke it in half. (laughs) Imagine being that guy. Like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, I just knocked over the Statue of Liberty. Oopsie. Uh, You know? Oh, so here we are at Plymouth Rocks. Excuse me? Did you say rock or rock? <laughs> well, I'm sorry. What was that? I couldn't hear you over the sound of the forklift. <laughs> I couldn't hear you out of the sound of me updating my resume. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh. And the other story, and I know I've told this story before, but I don't care. I'm telling it again because son of a bitch. Many years ago, never mind how many, mm-hmm. um, for you uh, New Englanders, uh, I got really ambitious one day, and I decided I was going to go for a very, very long bike ride, and I rode my bike all the way out to Plymouth Rock. Now, people that are listening that aren't from this area don't have a map in their head. It ended up being about a 60, in between 60 and 65 mile in a circle bike ride. It was Mm -hmm. a very long bike ride. And I rode all, like I said, I rode all the way out to Plymouth Rock. So I'm doing this kind of like humble brag on my uh, Facebook. I think it was on Facebook. And I took a picture of the rock and I put the caption underneath it went out for a bike ride today expecting a few oohs and ahs because people would know that that's a long-ass bike ride. Right. What did I get? Instead, my friend Bob, son of a bitch, leaves the comment, <laughs> not the real rock. <laughs> I know it's not the real rock, you asshole. <laughs> the real rock was in I'm talking one about piece. my bike ride. You're over there killing me with semantics. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for missing the spirit of the thing. oh that's funny so anytime i have the opportunity he'll take post a picture and i'll leave a comment like he had a picture of like i don't know a pinball machine whenever we went to play and i was like that's not the real avengers you know something like that every chance i get (laughs) (laughs) oh that's very funny all right, what do we got for the 12th? Well, on the 12th, well... What, what disappointment do we have for the 12th? Right, well, speaking of, yeah, speaking of disappointment, uh, on the 12th, uh, January 12th, 1981, a TV show premieres on ABC, I think it was Friday nights at 9, and was, if not the first, one of the first nighttime soap operas that became really popular with my mother. And that show was Dynasty. 
starring oh. John Forsyth, who I only knew from the voice of Charlie on Charlie's Angels. Right. And Linda Evans, who I didn't know from anywhere. Later, Joan Collins, who I remember being hacked to death in, the, in a, a monster movie, a slasher movie. Yeah, Joan Collins was like kind of like a B-list Hollywood yeah. star. Yep. And then she was on Dynasty, and she was you know, a very uh, glamorous and beautiful woman on the show. Right. And she was around 50, and everyone made such a big deal about how beautiful she was for 50. And even now, I see her now, she's like 90, you know, 90 and some change. And, I mean, her wig looks fantastic, but she still looks she looks great for a 90-year-old woman. You know, she's, yeah. she's held on to it, right? Well, it goes to show you, like, you know, the, the, the way that we perceive age as has changed as time has gone on. I, you know, I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, 54, you're killing it, yeah. you know? <laughs> but back then it was like, oh, my God, she's 50. Look at how good she looks. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I got my pants on the right way and I, I, I comb my hair. I look all right. Yeah, it's like the mom in Home Alone. She was 36. I'm like, 96? Right. Is she single? You know? Um, <laughs> did she, when did she start having all those kids when she was nine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, anyway, going back to Dynasty, like you said, I'm not sure if it was the first, but it was definitely the most popular at the time. That was like yeah, was groundbreaking TV and like must watch. You know, everybody was talking about it. And that was like a kind of like a, a TV trope in the 80s. The way we always talk about variety shows in the 70s, nighttime yeah. soap operas were all the rage in the 80s. There was a bunch of them. We should have known then that that style of storytelling would become the dominant style of storytelling now. Uh, it's uh, was Each season was one long episode, right? Broken up into like 64 pieces or something. Yeah, 20, and 22. It, it, yeah. The sto- 22. Well, the story went from episode to episode to episode with a consistent storyline that traveled along with the characters through time. So that if you started to watch Dynasty like at episode seventeen of twenty two, you needed I'm to lost. have a friend yeah. and, a, and a yeah and a stack of TV guides to go like, wait a minute, who the hell is this person, and uh, what are they talking about? Um, so that you could make sense of it. And that was it's a it's a funny thing. It doesn't surprise me that the show was a big hit with American women because it borrowed the same format as long running afternoon soap operas. It just did it at higher production value with different commercials in a shorter time span, uh, season to season. Without the expected million-year longevity of, like, Days of Our Lives or General sure. Hospital or whatever. Right. It was also shot on film, not on video. And, like, there's some other things that made it sort of special. And at one time, there was a, there were a whole bunch of these things. There was this one. There was Dallas. There was Falcon Crest. I'm sure there were others. I, I can see Landing. Them. Dots Landing, yeah, I remember right. I used to call With, it Snots Landing. Uh, no, Dots Landing, who which made a star out of another B film actress, Donna Mills. Yeah, remember Donna Mills? She was in one of those yep. movies that we watched, um, virtual movie night. But she, you know, I mean, she wasn't a big star, but but Falcon Crest made her a big star, and then um, Dynasty was such a big hit of a show that there was actually a spinoff called The Colbys. That's right. I don't think that one lasted as long. No. You know, the tropes of the style, the genre, were enough that it, it generated a couple of different spoofs. I know that regular soap operas, you're a fan of soap, which yeah. was spoofing the afternoon soap operas. So did Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. That was a spoof of afternoon soap operas. Yeah. These shows got a, a short-lived miniseries called Fresno, 
with Carol Burnett and oh, Harvey Corman. Yeah, that was like that about was the really raisin. Funny. It was like a, yeah. a family that owned like a raisin business, right? <laughs> the, Ke- the Kensington Raisin Millionaires. Yeah, that was a really funny, silly show. <laughs> and it used all the same storytelling beats as Dynasty or Dallas or whatever, except everybody was like goofy. It was really funny. Even uh, more recently, in 2014 or something, right around there at least, I remember watching it when it was on, uh, there was a spoof of these shows called The Spoils of Babylon, which was based on a non-existent book. It was meant to spoof network miniseries and long-form soap operas. It was super silly. It had Tim Robbins in it, and Val Kilmer was in it briefly. Kristen Wiig was in it. Will Ferrell played Eric John Rosh, who introduced each episode with this ridiculous conversation like a, like uh, Orson Welles. It was really funny. But it goes to show that that kind of storytelling still has a place and still can be interesting, even if it's dorky. As opposed to being serious, like Dynasty was a serious program. Go back and watch it now, it's not serious, but, you know. They actually tried bringing back Dynasty, like rebooting it, a couple of years ago, but that went absolutely nowhere. Like, I don't even think it made a full season. Or maybe it did, I don't know. I know it happened, I just don't, I'm not familiar with it. I threatened well, myself I, with going back and watching the original Dynasty because I used to watch it when I was a kid because all the girls right. on it were so pretty. But I don't remember anything about that show. I can tell you who was in I, it. <laughs> all I remember from that show is that my mom watched it. We weren't allowed to make any noise. So if we were going to sit in the living room, we had to be silent or we could go to any other room in the house. So I was generally in another room in the house. All right, moving on to January the 13th. And January the 13th is... Both of you and I uh, mm-hmm. have brothers that were born on January the 13th, which is pretty, That's correct. In- pretty interesting. Yeah. My um, brother Aaron. Happy yep, birthday, my, Aaron. And my brother Norman. Happy birthday, Norman. Uh, happy also, birthday, Norman. Yeah. Also born, and happy birthday, Aaron. Also born on January the 13th in 1955, South African guitar player Trevor Rabin. He was the guy in uh, The Buggles, right? <laughs> no. That's Trevor oh. Horn. Um, oh, man. But this Trevor Rabin, this Trevor, was also in the band Yes, just like Trevor right. Horn. Um, <laughs> were they ever both in the same band at the same time? No, they were not. Uh, oh, Trevor that, Horn that makes was things in, easier for everybody else, I'm sure. Yeah, Trevor Horn was in Yes for one album called Drama. I think that was like 1979 or 1980. And uh, Trevor Rabin was in Yes for, I think, one album. The... Yeah, nine zero one two five. Yeah, nine zero one two five. Probably the, their most popular album. And whenever I say popular, I mean in the pop sense. Yeah. So that was the one with like "Owner of a Lonely Heart." And yeah, good talk. That uh, was their break. That was their breakthrough into MTV. Like they were one of the few classic acts that were still putting out like weird, good long form videos. Right. Um, in the in the MTV years. And that album doesn't. That was like a, a splitter though because. That album gained them a lot of new fans, but it also alienated a lot of their original fans because it was a very different sounding Yes album. Do you remember when MTV had the contest for the song Leave It? Yeah. And there were like 20 20 different versions of Leave It. It wasn't a contest. It's just that the band Yes filmed a, a lot of lot of different versions. And yeah, that's the version of Yes with Trevor Rabin in it. Right. Now, I always like that song. Yeah. Now, here's the fun story. I had gone to see Yes uh, probably about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more now, 
one of my favorite Jeff McLarge huge jokes. I was just going to say, what, what song did they play? Yeah, I am going to see <laughs> yesterday. Oh, really? What song are they going to play? So, at any rate, I had gone to see Yes, and that particular lineup had Steve Howe playing guitar and not Trevor <laughs> Rabin. Uh, right. So, when they played Owner of a Lonely Heart, the iconic guitar solo that Trevor Rabin played, Steve Howe did not play that. He played his own version of, of that right. guitar solo. One of the guys I went to that show with, my friend Rich, you would swear to any god that will listen that out of all the songs that Yes played that night, and yes, they did play more than one, out of all the songs that they played that night and all the songs that Asia, the opening band, played that night, no, there was only one song. It was Owner of a Lonely Heart, and that guitar solo was wrong. That's all they <laughs> talked about the whole way home and anytime he brought up that concert for years. Nice. Was, wasn't Asia like half of uh, ni- late 1970s Yes Anyway? Uh, so there's the thing. Uh, Asia was... <laughs> Asia was Steve, Steve Howe from yeah. Yes and Jeff Downs, who was the keyboard player for the Buggles with Trevor Horn. Not Trevor Rabin, <laughs> ah! the guy we're talking about. It's it's too much, it's too much. Boom, there's, my head just exploded. Yeah. All right, and let's wrap up the week. All right, now I get to the opportunity to explode your head. January 14th, 2017. All right, I'm going to start the timer. The, okay. The Federal Communications Commissioner, FCC, votes to end something known as net neutrality. Do you know what net neutrality is, Bill? I, you know, that was such a hot button topic on the, obviously on the internet. Uh, it was such a hot button topic for a lot of years, but it kind of hasn't been talked about in a long time. I know the only people that would vote for net neutrality would be the companies. It doesn't seem like it benefits the consumer very much. It doesn't benefit the consumer, and it's regulate the way that the internet is used to carry data between corporations okay. and ultimately to end users like you and me who are recording this podcast today. Uh, and the way that it came about was there was concern as the digital infrastructure was switching from analog telephones to computer-based yep. like web browsing and other things is that as there was consolidation after 1996, companies like Comcast, who were at the time I think in 2017 was the largest cable provider in the United States because they'd absorbed all their local competition. Same thing with Spectrum, same thing with Charter, same thing with, you know, PacBell, whatever. And they could do things like throttle the throughput that customers of Netflix had to see Netflix content to try and encourage them to use their streaming service through video on demand. So that's kind of what they were doing. So it was to punish Netflix because Netflix pays a licensing fee to transmit stuff over the Comcast network. Yep. But if they weren't renegotiating or if they wanted to do it for less money or wouldn't do it for more money, there was the threat that they would throttle the throughput and that would hurt the consumers at the end who would ultimately leave Netflix to go to Comcast or to another provider that Comcast had an agreement with and you got faster speeds and or higher higher quality transmissions from. All right. So it sounds like a big deal. All right. So hold on. Because, Let me like explain yep. my situation, and I won't use as many big words. So, <laughs> so I'll dumb it down for a little bit. Like a lot of people, I have canceled cable, and I just do internet only. Yep. And I use Hulu for my streaming channels. So right. if net neutrality went go bye-bye, 
and the cable companies could do whatever the hell they wanted, they could slow down the data that goes through Hulu and make watching Hulu like impossible. I the only thing I really watch is wrestling. So if I'm over there trying to watch wrestling, which is a live television program, mm-hmm. and it keeps you know buffering and crapping out, I might get frustrated, cancel Hulu, and go back to regular cable television. Correct. Which is what they would want me to do. But with Correct. net neutrality, they can't slow down what you're watching. Every all, so, all data would come through at the same speed, no matter what. So previous to 2017... The internet was regulated as a utility, a public utility. So electric companies can't throttle electrical transmissions over electrical wires to businesses that they don't they don't like. Right. Just like the city gas company can't do that to companies that they don't like. Like it has to be done at the individual customer level, not some intermediary company. Right. So because it's a public utility, the internet and all of the infrastructure that is used to make it work has to treat everybody that's on it the same. So Netflix pays the same and has the same throughput and same access to copper to carry their signals around as AT&T does, as, uh, I don't know, Hulu does, as Paramount Plus or whatever. And the companies that manage the infrastructure can't pick and choose who does or doesn't have higher throughput based on anything, including payment. Right. So... In 2017, the cable companies and AT&T and others got together. They paid a whole bunch of lobbyists. That was the year that, that's the first year of the Trump presidency, and he had put a, a cable TV executive from Comcast in charge of the Federal Communications Commission and ultimately brought it up for a vote, and it was voted, net neutrality was voted out so that Ugh. companies could throttle things. And they started to throttle things, but then consumers are pretty savvy if i'm cutting the cord and i'm not getting good throughput i call the customer service line and yell right a lot of people yell and then the lawyers from like netflix sue or youtube or google or whatever and they start to build their own infrastructure to, to prevent it from happening right. so there's all of these things that sort of happened and then there were a bunch of contracts and packs where companies said they weren't going to do anything to throttle anything we're going to pretend that net neutrality is still a thing and we're going to keep going and and they kind of have and in the years since then, they've replaced that head of the FCC with a new appointee who was like a deputy, and she's been committed to getting net neutrality back, voted back in uh, as a standard and practice and re-regulating the internet as internet providers as a public utility. And time. That was a long one. Sorry about that. Yes. <laughs> Boom. And then there goes your head. <laughs> okay. So before we get on to our worst song ever this week, uh, we do have our weird holiday on uh, January the 13th, it is International Skeptics Day. I don't believe you. No, no well, I, I'm not really sure skeptics actually exist. So at least I'm not sure they exist on a worldwide level, like on an international <laughs> level. You think there's only, there are only American skeptics? That's it? So. You know, uh, sort of. Because uh, I go up to Montreal every, every couple of years for some concerts, and I've made some friends up there. And one friend that I've stayed in contact with, my friend Pierre, and who's, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's French, uh, my friend Pierre, and... You I, know, had, some, I had no idea. Yeah. I was skeptical until you ah, said his name, Bill. And, you know, I, I always think that there's some sort of, like, weird cultural difference between us and Canada... There really isn't, you know, because I'll say, you know, you know, Americans do this, 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 that, and the other. He goes, yeah, we're the same way, dude. <laughs> they drink their maple syrup cut with uh, Canadian whiskey. We drink it cut with uh, bourbon. It's the only difference. 
All right. Cultural <laughs> appropriations put aside. And, and we're going to get to quite a few cultural appropriations as we discuss this week's... Worst song ever. Uh, so we got another request this week for our worst song ever. And we have a first. We have a first for Twibbly. This is the first time that a star from one of the worst movie ever's also appears in our worst song ever. And the song yeah, we're right. talking about this week is a song called Shrut by none other than <laughs> Steven Seagal. So this song is part of a considerably longer album project that he put out. It's like a vanity thing, vanity project that he produced and financed and everything. And Yeah, 2000, I think it was 2004, 2005. So just about 19, 20 years ago, yeah. Yeah, well, I forget the name of the record. Do you remember the name of the record? Oh, it's something really pretentious. It's called yeah. Songs from the Crystal Cave. There's only one thing more pretentious than the name of this album is the cover of the album, which is your friend and mine, Steven Seagal, like holding up the fretboard of a guitar as if to say, yeah, I play guitar, bitch. Yeah, you know, admittedly, like I'm not going to take anything away from him. He does play guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's not bad at it. No. But everything else he is bad at so, on this record. Uh, before we go into the uh, the long run of the record, I do want to play a clip of this one song in particular. This song okay. called Strut uh, is <laughs> like, you know, sometimes there'll be singles and it'll be like, you know, so-and-so featuring so-and-so else, you know? Right. So yeah. this song is Steven Seagal featuring lady saw and when i say yeah. featuring i mean she's about 80 percent of the vocals on this song she she definitely does have a large is, component of the responsibility for this record yeah she is featured so that's sexy isn't it <laughs> yes know, it's as it's as sexy what, as a drain clog when i woke up this morning thinking to myself that i would be hearing a song where steven seagal says the word punani more than <laughs> more than once that was not what I thought I was waking up to today. Absolutely not. The only like real joy I got out of this song at all, and then I'll we'll talk more about like the structure of the thing, but was that every time he says Punani, I apologize to our audience for having to use that stupid term. Uh, <laughs> I heard him say Tsunami, which was the old like adult swim anime night bumper. Oh, name. Tsunami, yeah. <laughs> no, Tsunami. Uh, and I was like, oh, he oh, likes, tsunami, yeah. likes anime. Yeah, Tsunami. And I'm like, that's not what he's saying. He's saying Punani, <laughs> which is a terrible word to use to describe a lady's private parts. Um, <laughs> so ultimately, the film is the film. It's hard to talk about Steven Seagal and not, and not use that word. This song is a duet with him and, and a Jamaican dance hall uh, rapper named Lady Saw, who, I'm not going to lie, I was introduced to by this crappy record by this crappy song and went yep. and spent way more time listening to her music than i did to his yep. so much like the aikido where he throws a guy who's thrown a punch 
without <laughs> really touching him. So I listened to this song and then I kind of got thrown into a bunch of singles by Lady Saw, which I enjoyed very much. Yeah, she's very niche like we were saying before the show started. She's got very, very few listens on Spotify. For some reason, Stephen Seagal has way more. Not that he has a lot, but he has more than Lady Saw does. Also, she's a very niche thing, you know? Jamaican dancehall music, yeah, it doesn't really make its way outside of Jamaica, really. Not in the pop music sense, anyway. Since I was watching videos of hers from like 14 or 15 years ago, Yep. And I watched, I don't know, half a dozen of them. I thought to myself, oh my goodness me, this is where Cardi B gets 100% of her act from. Except she's nowhere near as good. (laughs) So uh, this is also going back, like I said, 2004. So Stephen Seagal was like kind of a big action star at that time. And this is a total vanity project. I think you Mm -hmm. were saying that this wasn't even released in the States. It was not. It was not released in the United States because I'm sure that he, his lawyers sat down with him and they said, Stephen, your last five movies have bombed. You get made fun of by movie critics all over the place. If you put this record out, no one's going to play it. And he went, let's just put it out in Russia. And they said, what? You're whispering. Yeah. He goes, let's just put it out in Russia. That's and how I talk. I'm sorry. I can't, I can't <laughs> understand what you said, Stephen. Punani. No. No, Stephen. Don't say that <laughs> word anymore. So uh, I'm looking at the album cover, the awesome album cover and apparently the inside uh pictures of the like the inlay he's also holding that guitar which is a it looks like a fender yeah uh, this is pre-ponytail uh steven seagal his hair's not pulled back in the ponytail in this he has another album actually he's got a few albums the next album was called mojo priest right and uh that one's like more blues oriented this one that we're talking about um, yeah, it's all over. It's all over the place. It's, it's there's all, all kinds. Of, the there's place. all kinds of stuff going on in this record. Yeah. I mean, that makes it like ultimately for one run through the whole thing. It makes it listenable because you don't know what the hell the next song is going to be. It could be country. It could be world music. It could be more like dancehall reggae because there's another dancehall reggae song on this thing. Well, at all, I'm not going to say that they're not good, but they're not bad either. It's kind of like chicken. Like if you just bought like a pack of chicken breasts yep. and then like. Didn't butter the pan, just used it like vegetable oil or whatever, and just like cooked the chicken with no seasoning, no anything, just cooked it until it's edible, and then ate it. It's like, okay, I'm eating chicken. This is pretty good. It's not bad, but it's not great, you know? Right. I don't know who would say, you know what I feel like listening today? Steven Seagal. (laughs) Except... (laughs) (laughs) except with the thing that this album is so eclectic there's world music i heard one song i'm listening to it on the way home from work today and i was like this is a country song like this has all the beats of a country song except for it's not produced like a country song so it's and it's also said steven seagal singing (laughs) so so it it could be a country song if somebody else recorded it but it's not and then when it got to the bridge of the song it started going into that lady saw style kind of you know jamaican singing that i don't do very well right and then it went back into this country western song it's I, it's, it's like a confusing. bingo card of just like yeah. weird music, yeah. I, I think this probably gets more plays on streaming services like Spotify because no one puts it on to like put it on, except maybe Steven Seagal. 
I'm going to put on a record. Oh, no, no, Stephen, please don't. I think the, the 164,000 monthly listens that he gets is people typed in Stephen looking for something else. And then right. Stephen Seagal pops up and the people like me going, Stephen Seagal? What the or, hell? Or it's, or it's prefaced with this conversation between two people. Hey, did you ever hear that crappy Steven Seagal record? <laughs> no? Hold on. <laughs> it's it's on the record. <laughs> yeah, it's, so. it's this is the, the first of his albums, one where he starts dabbling in being a Buddhist lama, not the animal, but the reincarnated soul of a Buddhist priest. <laughs> you know, the one L, yeah, the one L lama. The, the one that only spits on the sidewalk and not on the people <laughs> no, who are petting no it. Um, me. If he was not Steven Seagal, if he was like, if his name was like Steve Siegel, Right? Yeah. Steve Siegel. This is where Steve Siegel would get to with his level. This is the level of talent. This is what it would get him. Yeah. So it would, you'd see there's this, a sign outside of a bar that has about 15 stools in it and like 13 tables, tables for two, a couple of uh, high tops maybe. And then in the corner, there's Steven Siegel. And he's playing for free to get his name out there. And in between him doing songs with a cd player next to him that he's playing along with and singing he works in like i'm gonna put in one of my originals this one's called buddhist lama 14 <laughs> and at that point no one is paying attention to him at all and he continues to play and at the end of the night he gets a free beer and they give him maybe a hot dog or like eight dollars and foof off he goes and he'll be back next week to do it again because he's building a following because some of the same people come back to the bar next week not to see him but he sees them <laughs> And that's, okay. that's Steve Siegel right there. All right. Before we wrap up the segment, I do want to throw this out there. He has a second album called Mojo Priest because, of course, it is. I'm looking at the song list over here. Song number six is, I'm not making this up, Jeff, Alligator Ass. Yep. Right? Song seven, Barbecue. Song eight, Hoochie Coochie Man, which is obviously the sequel to Punani <laughs> Tsunami over here. And then the very next song, I am intrigued. After we get done recording, I am listening to this show as I pack my bags for the weekend. The song number nine on Mojo Priest is called Talk to My Ass. Yes. Don't say yes like awesome. you've heard this before. No, I have not heard that before. But I I mean, I recognize the theme in his in his song titles. <laughs> yes, of course. Talk to My Ass is an of old favorite. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, it's a classical piece. Really. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before we wrap up the show, I do have the answer to my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, awesome. Jeff. Oh, wait, are you going to tell me the answer this time? I'm going to tell it. you. Yeah, we were talking about webcam shows and not just the ones that take place in the Eastern Bloc. Uh, just <laughs> webcam shows as a, uh, a form of entertainment. Uh, right. Twitch, people twitch their video games and stuff like that. I do live streams of my artwork. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. But... What was the first webcam ever to stream, and huh. what was it? And what was its purpose? I'm gonna guess because I'm good at doing those things. I'm gonna guess that the first webcam was pointed at some machine that had to be monitored. It was going to be monitored. That's my guess. I don't know what machine it was pointed at, but it was pointed at a machine that other people were re monitoring remotely. Okay, I'm going to give you 89% of a point because, okay. because you're right. It was pointed at a machine that needed to be monitored, but the machine it was pointing at is such an awesome machine, and it makes the story that much better. 
Okay. Because because you're missing the key element of it, I'm taking away 11% of a point. Okay. All right. So the you know first, what? Fair enough. The first webcam ever was at the University of Cambridge in 1993, and it was pointing at the coffee pot. It was pointing (laughs) at the coffee pot so people could check to see if it was empty or full. That makes perfect sense, and I'm sure we'd still use them today. All right. But that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We'll see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook or Instagram at Twibley or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. They'll probably get all the trivia questions right too, bastards. <laughs>